All right, well, now we come to our time for the preaching of God's word. And if you would please stand and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 1003. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you that we can come before you now, that we can come confidently before the throne of grace. God, that we can seek your face. God, that we can hear from you as you speak to us today through your word. We ask that you would do so. God, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Help us to know you more fully. God, help us to grow in the knowledge and the, and the grace um, of the truth that you have given to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you have already uh, or currently are or plan to at some time in the future do any studies after high school, uh, you will probably have classes like intro to philosophy, intro to psychology or uh, sociology or communication. Uh, usually those are the, the 101 classes in your curriculum. And the goal of these classes is not just an information dump. It's not just that you go and you listen to some expert professor who has studied these things for years, just tell you a whole bunch of information. The goal is teaching you how to learn, teaching you how to learn about that subject, giving you methods and giving you frameworks for the subject at hand and laying the foundation so that you can, if you're going on to further, maybe that you're going to choose that for your major, they've set the stage for you to be able to to do well in that subject. I was thinking about this uh, yesterday and I thought of an interesting example. Um, in seminary, we, we use this textbook and most people who study biblical Greek use this book. It's called The Basics of Biblical Greek by Bill Mounts, a pretty well-known book. And if you look at the beginning of this book, I uh, think about studying a new language. This is pretty typical. He starts off, first he just introduces the Greek language. What is the Greek language? Then the second chapter, he talks about learning Greek, like how do you actually go about this process? Then as you would imagine, he gets into the alphabet and pronunciation in chapter three. Chapter four is punctuation and syllabification, right? How do you, how do you separate the syllables so that you can pronounce the word correctly? And then chapter five, this is why I thought about this book, because I remember this chapter and I remember how important this was. Chapter five sounds very strange. It is called Introduction to English Nouns. And you're probably thinking, what? Like, why are we learning about English nouns in a Greek textbook? 
And here's what he says. As strange as it may seem, the first major obstacle many of you must overcome in your lack is your lack of knowledge of English grammar. For whatever reasons, many do not know enough English grammar to learn Greek grammar. I cannot teach about the Greek nominative case, nominative case, until you know what a case is. You must learn to crawl before walking. And I remember starting to dig into some of this stuff and I was like, yeah, I don't even know English grammar, right? We take it for granted. We take those basics for granted. And so that's a great example of how you need to really, like you need to learn your own language before you're gonna learn this other language. And just thinking about the challenges and this idea of getting back to the basics, uh, we need to be honest with ourselves that Hebrews, this letter, this sermon, as we have said, it, it, was, it was written as a sermon. This is very challenging. This is one of the most challenging places in the New Testament. Not only is the author and the audience and the occasion uh, a mystery, there are some hard to understand and there are some hotly debated passages. Uh, after this week, as James mentioned, we're going to be spending the next three Sundays uh, in our Christmas Eve service uh, looking at the, we're going to kind of do the theme of come now long expected Jesus and be looking at some Old Testament and New Testament passages. And then in the new year, second Sunday in January, we're going to pick back up in Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter five. And right away, we're going to be looking at this strange figure, Melchizedek, who you've probably heard of before. Then we're going to get into chapter six, and we're going to be looking at the topic of apostasy, probably one of the most hotly debated passages in all of the New Testament. Really looking forward to that. <laughs> and then uh, we're going to be back looking at more about Melchizedek in chapter seven. And what I don't want for us in all of that, and what I believe our author didn't want for the congregation that originally received this letter, is to get lost in the details of some of these more challenging passages. Our author seeks to keep us grounded in the basic truths of the gospel. And this passage is a classic example of that, getting back to the basics. Now, if we were going to have a Bible class, a Bible 101 class, and if I was writing the curriculum for that, I would begin our study of the Old Testament by focusing on three questions, kind of setting this framework. As we're looking through the Old Testament and we're considering what it is teaching us, I would want us to always be having these three questions in our mind. First, who is God? Second, what has he done? And third, how are people to respond? So who is God? What has he done? And, and how are people to respond? We would need, in that case, looking at the Old Testament, to consider the context of Israel, God's chosen people. And we would need to look at how their response to God was meant to serve as an example to the nations around them. And we see this all over the Old Testament. Then we get to the New Testament. There is no surprise then that the church is to be a missionary people that takes the gospel to the nations. We must also ask those three same basic questions but now it is in light of God's revelation of himself to us by his son, through whom he has spoken in these last days, as we saw in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. So now we ask the questions, who is Jesus? What has he done? And what must our response to him be? Who is Jesus? What has he done? And what must our response to him be? 
These questions are always significant for us, but they're especially significant at Christmas time. We're in a culture that is still somewhat okay with some vague understanding and some vague acknowledgement of a transcendent God. But that God has to be generic enough to stay out of our way when we want to be in charge of our own lives. And he better not be telling us how we should be living our lives. We're okay, I think for the most part, most people with sweet baby Jesus in a manger, but he needs to stay there, right? He can't be king of kings and lord of lords who is sitting on his throne and coming back one day to judge the living and the dead. The issue for many people is that they need to go back to school for Christianity 101. Now, like many people, probably like some of you, I grew up in the church and I had no grasp of who Jesus is and what he had done for me and what my response should be. All I heard was just moralism, right? Be a good person, but that was about it. After hearing the gospel my freshman year and after trusting Christ, I, I went home and I was talking to my mom and stepdad, you know, and they're of course like, what's going on with you? Like, is this just some kind of phase you're going through? And I'm like, no, like Christ has changed my life. Like I understand the gospel. I understand what it means. And I understand what all those things that the church was talking, you know, not really talking about, but maybe hinting at, not talking about clearly growing up. Like I understand what all that means now. And as I shared with them, and then they later became Christians. I remember standing in the kitchen, talking to my mom and she was like, I never, like, I never understood why Jesus was important. Like, I didn't understand anything about the Trinity. It just, you know, God, there's this God out there, but I didn't understand what it meant to really know Jesus and to trust him. And just like to see the light bulbs go on for her was like, yes, like that is amazing. And clearly we believe it's, it's more than just having head knowledge, right? It's more than just having right information. We don't ultimately just need to have our brains fixed. We need to have our dead in sin hearts, our stone cold hearts removed and transplanted with living hearts of flesh. And that is something that is only a supernatural work of the spirit of God. But once that happens and once our eyes are open to the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and what our response must be, then we have a responsibility and a privilege to seek to grow in our faith. So today's passage is a great example for us to how we need to get back to the basics. We need to keep it simple, right? We need to get back to the basics of the Christian faith. So let's try to answer these three questions from our passage. First, who is Jesus? And one of the major themes in Hebrews is the priesthood of Jesus. It's emphasizing how he is superior to the Old Testament priests, how he is superior uh, as in terms of his sacrifice, how his sacrifice for sin on the cross did what the entire Old Testament sacrificial system couldn't do for the last 1,500 years of daily sacrifices. We're going to be spending a lot of time over the next six chapters looking at Jesus' priesthood, looking at his sacrifice for our sins. So I don't really want to spend too much time digging into all that today. Uh, but there is something that is worth noting here in this passage, and it's this title that is given to Jesus, our great high priest. This is the only time that he is called our great high priest. And there's something uh, pretty significant about this. He, in Hebrews 10.21, he is called our great priest. And then in uh, 
Hebrews 13, 20, he's called the great shepherd of the sheep. So that word great is used. But here's the only time he is called our great high priest. This is a, this is a little challenging. I want to try to explain this clearly. Um, but in the Old Testament, the word for high priest that we see, uh, the word that's translated high can also mean great. The word's used over 500 times in the Old Testament. Over 300 of those times is actually translated great. Uh, sometimes it's translated high as in high priest. But that Hebrew, that Hebrew word is gadol, which means mostly means great, okay? Now, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. We call that the Septuagint, okay? It's uh, LXX is the, is the abbreviation for that. So if you're ever reading in any like book about theology and you see LXX and you're like, what on earth is that? That stands for the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the translation of the word gadol in Hebrew into the Greek is the word megas. You can probably figure that out, right? Mega, it's the word great. It's where we get the word mega and it means great, okay? So Greek translation of the Old Testament of the Hebrew takes the word gadol, great or high and translates it into megas, okay? Now, when we get into the New Testament, the word for high priest here is actually a compound word that takes the word, the generic word for priest, and then adds a, a suffix to it that basically means like head or highest. So these two words, high priest in the, in the English is actually just one Greek word. But then when we have great high priest, we have the word megas in front of it. So we have mega high priest. And the Jewish background believers who would have been familiar with this terminology, they would have known that connection with the Old Testament translation. Essentially, they would have heard Jesus here being called the mega, mega priest, right? So this emphasis adding, like, he didn't need to add mega here because they already know that. That's already the way they would have understood it. But he, he calls Jesus here the mega, mega priest. It's emphasizing that he is distinguished very clearly from this earthly high priest. And there is no doubt in our author's mind that Jesus is greater, that he is the great, great high priest. And he wants to make sure that his audience, he wants to make sure that we understand that. And this shouldn't really come as a surprise for us when we're given here his earthly name, Jesus, and then we're told that he is the son of God. So he's fully God and he's fully man. Talking about his humanity by calling him by his earthly name and then saying that he is the son of God. Again, this is something that we especially highlight during the Christmas season. Jesus is the mega, mega priest because he could do as the son of God what no other earthly priest could do. And we're going to see that in our next section. So Jesus is, to answer our question, who is Jesus? Jesus is our great high priest and the son of God. He also is sympathetic. We see this here in verse 15 in this double negative. It says, we do not have a high priest who is unable Again, in the original, this is actually two separate words. It's literally not able. So you, you kind of have that. There's two nots in there. It's very emphatic, this double negative. We do not have a high priest who is not able to sympathize with our weaknesses. So saying we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Again, that double negative is, is used for emphasis. And we'll come back to this 
uh, more in the next section as we consider what Jesus has done. So he is our great high priest. He is the son of God. He is sympathetic. And the final thing here at the end of verse 15 is that Jesus is without sin. The author of Hebrews comes back to this in chapter 7. You can actually turn there. Uh, it's, if you have the pew Bible, let's just turn, turn one page over. Uh, Hebrews 7, starting in verse 26. It says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he, was off, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So the sinless perfection of Jesus is strongly emphasized in the language here in verse 26. Again, he is holy, he is innocent, he is unstained, he is separated from sinners. He is without sin. Then we see what he has done as our high priest. He's offered up himself for our sins because he is not like the weak earthly high priest, but he is perfect as the son of God. This is a helpful transition then into our next section as we look at what has Jesus done. The first thing that we are told is that he has passed through the heavens back in uh, chapter 4, verse 14. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now, this here is speaking of his, his ascension into heaven. In chapter 8, verse 1, we're told that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And then in chapters 8 and 9, there's this contrast is made between the earthly holy place where the high priest would enter every year on the day of atonement. He would go into the holy of holies. He would be wearing a robe that would have bells around the bottom of it so that they could hear on the outside that to make sure he was still moving around. He had a rope tied around his leg in case he got struck dead, uh, that they would be able to pull him out if they heard those bells stop ringing. And this contrast then that between that earthly holy place and then what we're told later on in chapter 9 where it says Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Jesus passing into the heavens as a result of his ascension was purposeful. He appears now in God's presence, on our behalf, as our mediator. We saw this in, as we looked at the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, part 8. Again, if you have that sheet, you can refer to that. It says, to all those for whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them, and revealing unto them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey, and governing their hearts by his word and spirit, overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom, in such manner and ways are as, as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. We can actually ask our question in a more clear way. Not only 
what has Jesus done, but what is Jesus doing? And we see that here in this last section. If you were around this summer when we did our prophet, priest, and king series, and we asked the, our catechism questions uh, from, from the shorter catechism about what, how Christ fulfills his office of a prophet, how he fulfills his office of, of a priest, and he fulfills his office as, office as a king, you'll notice that same language in here. As a priest, he makes intercession for us. As a prophet, he reveals unto us by the word the mysteries of salvation. And as a king, he overcomes all of our enemies by his almighty power and wisdom. This is not something, we don't say he did all of these things, right, in the past. He continues to do these things now as he is seated at the right hand of the Father, as he is seated in God's presence. So he is currently mediating and interceding for us. He continues to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every respect as we are. Now, this is one of those instances where getting into the, the grammar of the Greek can actually be uh, really helpful in understanding some of these things. This word that says that Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are, it's actually in the perfect tense. So the perfect tense is indicating a past event that has ongoing consequences. So you can think of it as a line. There's an there's a end point, right, on the line where something happened, and then the line goes this way with an arrow pointing into the future. The, this past event that is completed has significance for the future. Now, when we think about this, a lot of times that means that the thing that it's talking about is continuing to happen. Well, when we see this, it says Jesus was tempted in every way. Clearly, we can't say Jesus is still being tempted in every way, right? Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father in glory, in perfection. He can't be being tempted. Well, what does this mean then? This means, again, in this perfect tense, that the temptation that he truly experienced as the God-man was a real temptation that allows him to continue to sympathize with us in our current weaknesses because the temptations that he experienced and the weaknesses that he experiences as a human were real. He was really tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He really experienced hunger and thirst and weariness. He was really deserted by his closest friends. He was really ultimately betrayed and endured a false trial and was ultimately murdered. Now, historically, there has been a lot of debate about some of these things, especially about the nature of Jesus' temptation. Some people would, would ask, well, since he was fully God and without sin, wasn't the temptation he experienced like not real temptation? And wasn't it different than the temptation that we experience? And C.S. Lewis addresses this question in Mere Christianity. He says, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. 
and Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. I wonder if we grasp this reality. The full reality of all that we've already seen here. That Jesus is the Son of God, our great high priest who has passed through the heavens and who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he remained sinless while being tempted in the same way that we are tempted. Now we could go home and we could meditate all day and all this next week on these truths and then on the rest of the great truths about Jesus Christ, our mediator that we saw in our confession in chapter eight. And I still think we would just be scratching the surface of what our finite brains can even handle. Our author knew that this was the case for himself and for his audience. And he knew it would be true for Christians throughout the ages. So what are we to do in light of this reality? How are we to respond to these great truths? He gives us two very clear admonitions in these verses. One in verse 14 and one in verse 16, beginning with the words, let us. Notice that he includes himself. He doesn't say, congregation, you must do such and such. But I, as the leader of God's people called to shepherd and instruct you, I am beyond the need for these reminders. I want to say, how much more do I need these reminders? Just because it's my job to do these things doesn't make it any easier. I'm right there with you in the boat, rowing along in the same need of directions from our great captain as all of you are. So church, what must our response to these truths be? First, let us hold fast our confession. This is not urging us as good reformed Presbyterians to grab hold of our Westminster confession of faith and cling tightly to it. We are a confessional church, and that is something that if you've been around here very long, you know that's very important to us. But we can't confuse this with what is being said here. Let us hold fast to our confession. In chapter 3, verse 1, our author told us to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Our confession, it has an inward and an outward element to it. This is seen pretty clearly in a passage that many of us know very well, Romans 10, 9, where we're told if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess outwardly and believe inwardly. Inwardly, our hearts must believe by faith, and outwardly, our lips must confess to the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. Dennis Johnson, in his commentary, says, confession signals believers' corporate responsibility to encourage each other's perseverance, as it refers to what Christians believe and verbally affirm together. Again, this corporate responsibility. My college pastor always used to say there is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. 
And that has always stuck with me. We live in a hyper-individualized culture in probably the most individualistic period in human history. And everything around us and everything sinfully within us screams for independence and autonomy. Look out for number one, right? You do you. Take care of yourself. It's all about you. But our faith will not allow for that. Our corporate confession that Jesus is Lord binds us together in an obligation to one another that we cannot allow to be severed by the individualism around us. Our author is going to further press this corporate responsibility home in chapter 10, beginning in verse 23, where he writes, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Livingstone Church, how are we doing at this? Are we stirring up one another to love and good works as we gather together corporately to confess our faith in Christ? As we meet together every other week in our community groups and in our men's and women's times, as we gather once a month after the service for our, for our meals. This doesn't mean that we can't enjoy conversations about day-to-day -day life. It doesn't mean we can't have a great debate this afternoon as we gather to eat about how the Packers are going to crush the Bears. It doesn't mean we can't talk about this crazy Wisconsin weather that gives us this snow and ice storm. And then four days later, it's going to be almost 60 degrees for two days. And then right after that, it's going to be back into the teens with snow again and just talking about this utter craziness, right? We can talk about those things and we can enjoy those things. But we have to be encouraging one another. We have to be talking about the meaningful things of life. And the other part of this corporate confession that is, is so important is the reality of our weaknesses and our temptations. We all experience them. And we all have the same sympathetic high priest who has been tempted, yet is without sin. And we need to point one another to him. When we're told to encourage one another, that means in light of our weaknesses, right? In light of our struggles, we need to encourage one another. We don't need this self-help, look inside yourself type of nonsense. We need, you can't do it on your own and neither can I. Let me pray for you and let us look to Christ together. Prayer. Well, why did he have to mention prayer in verse 16? Because that is the only lifeline for weak and tempted sinners. Look at verse 16 with me. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Another good English translation, the, the Christian Standard Bible translates this phrase, let us with confidence draw near, translates it, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Come boldly. Not like the earthly high priests who went into the Holy of Holies with fear and trepidation with that rope tied around his leg and those bells around on his robe in case he was struck dead by a holy God. Come to the throne of grace. Come in to the Holy of Holies where your King Jesus sits on the throne. 
he desires to extend mercy to you as a king does to unworthy subjects and to extend grace to you as a priest who has given up his own life as a sacrifice for your sins and mine. His grace is available to us as the end of verse 16 says, to help us in time of need. In other words, always, right? It's always a time of need. We're always in a state of weakness where we need to go to him in that time of need. Prayer is so crucial to our communion with the Lord, and yet it is so difficult. It feels so paradoxical because it is not a practice that we ever fully arrive at. I don't know anyone who genuinely can say like, yeah, man, I'm just killing it right now in my prayer life. Like, it's just awesome. Like, you should come and like learn from me, right? It is in our continual weakness and our continual need for mercy and grace that keeps us coming back to the throne of grace. And that is a good thing. If you are not familiar with the Valley of Vision, uh, you need to be. Uh, If you have ever said, man, I'm just struggling to pray right now, pick this book up, okay? Get a copy of this. It is a great um, great resource. It's, it is a bunch of Puritan prayers that are uh, very, what's um, the word I'm looking for, very transparent, very, very honest uh, about struggles uh, written by, uh, they're all anonymous, but we know who, that who some of the, the authors were, kind of generally speaking, uh, people we would hold in very high regard. And when you see these prayers and you see them crying out to the Lord in their weakness, it's kind of like, oh, if he, if he struggled that much, like, it's probably okay that I'm struggling to pray so much right now. But one of the prayers in here, I think this is quite fitting, is called paradoxes. And it sums up the challenge of prayer very well. And it points to our need to get back to the basics. I'm going to read this for us. Paradoxes. O changeless God, under the conviction of thy spirit, I learned that the more I do, the worse I am. The more I know, the less I know. The more holiness I have, the more sinful I am. The more I love, the more there is to love. O wretched man that I am. O Lord, I have a wild heart and cannot stand before thee. I am like a bird before a man. How little I love thy truth and ways. I neglect prayer by thinking I have prayed enough and earnestly, by knowing thou hast saved my soul. Of all hypocrites, grant that I might not be an evangelical hypocrite, who sins more safely because grace abounds, who tells his lusts that Christ's blood cleanseth them, who reasons that God cannot cast him into hell for he is saved, who loves evangelical preaching, churches, Christians, but lives unholily. My mind is a bucket without a bottom, with no spiritual understanding, no desire for the Lord's day, ever learning, but never reaching the truth, always at the gospel well, but never holding water. My conscience is without conviction or contrition, with nothing to repent of. My will is without power of decision or resolution. My heart is without affection and full of leaks. My memory has no retention, so I forget easily the lessons learned and thy truths seep away. 
Give me a broken heart that yet carries home the water of grace. I love that last line. Give me a broken heart that yet carries home the water of grace. This acknowledgement throughout this prayer, the crying out to God that his bucket leaks, right? His bucket in and of himself cannot hold water. And he cries out to God for a broken heart that can carry home the waters of grace. Brothers and sisters, we need that type of reminder. We need to pray these types of prayers in our weakness to say, God alone in Christ has the grace that we need. God alone in Christ has the mercy that we need to carry home the waters of grace. Amen. Let us pray. God, you are so good to us. You are so merciful. You are so gracious. God, we thank you that we can come boldly before the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need. God, we confess that we are a weak and needy people, but we thank you for Christ. We thank you for our savior, our mediator, our great high priest who has gone before us, who has laid down his life, a perfect sacrifice for sins. God, that we can receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. May our eyes look to Christ today and always as we are reminded of who he is and of what he has done. And may we respond appropriately by faith. God, we thank you for these things and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.